I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. You're joined again by six-time National Service Rifle Champion and Technical Director for International Barrels, Brian Stacy. Listen as we discuss the current state of service rifle, how to get into precision rifle series shooting, pro tips to help you with your marksmanship, as well as stories and adventures from working on farms and working anti-piracy security off the coast of Somalia. We're live. Nice. It's been a minute. It has. Holy crow. <laughs> Heck of lots changed since the last time that we got together here. A little bit, yeah. What's new? We've we've got what? Well, the last time we talked was last summer, right after I shot the service rifle match. We no. came back and we did part two of the mental management podcast. That's right. That so, was a fantastic podcast. I like those. Like I've listened to those quite a few times again over just to make sure I didn't sound like a weirdo. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they're they're quite good. And I've had quite a few people actually comment that, hey, you know, I bought the book because of what I heard you guys talking about during those two podcasts. So we get emails, we get phone do calls. You? Yeah, we do. Oh, really? Eh? Yeah. Well, people asking about it, telling the same thing that yeah. they bought the book and they want yep. to learn more. Yep. I mean, really, that's the secret to marksmanship. It's the secret to a lot of things. Sure. You know, it's that, it's, it's basically the technical manual to the, uh, what was that uh, book that came out that everybody was raving about there? The, the Secret? Yeah, yeah. Remember that? Yeah, I remember The Secret. Yeah, that I was never, on Oprah's list. Yeah, yeah. It was an Oprah book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I never did read it, but the gist of that is exactly the same as mental management. Okay. So, that was all about manifest destiny though, It right? was, yeah. But manifest destiny happens because you make it happen. Right. And it's exactly the same as mental management in my mind. It's that, uh, that other, remember that Russian guy we were talking about? He had that book, The Flow. Yeah, yeah. The Flow State. I can't yeah. even pronounce his name, but that's all mental management too. It's, it's mental management in a flowery right, right. presentation, but that's basically what it comes down to. Well, I'm always surprised at how once you put your mind to something, even if it's something that seems unbelievable at the time. Yeah. Later, it seems to come to fruition. It does. And I've never, you know, if I want to be a little bit analytical about it and look at it, am I now analyzing after the fact and just justifying facts to say, well, this ended up like this because of the way I was thinking? Mm -hmm. Or is it a situation where essentially everything unfolds because of the way that you're, you're managing it mentally, or yeah. is it the third one? Are we living in the matrix? And is it, <laughs> is it <laughs> a simulation? A simulation. <laughs> no, I think, I think that, uh, you're right there. I think that definitely we subconsciously make things happen that we may not, well, that we're not consciously thinking about, you know, we mm -hmm. want something to happen really badly. We subconsciously go through the process to get there mm -hmm. and guess what? It happens. Mm -hmm. hmm. Shocker. That's the same in shooting. It's mental management to a T. You just focus on the process and the end result is what you want. Hopefully. Just happens want. that way. Yeah. As long as the steps to get there 
mm-hmm. uh, are are perfect, then by the time you get to the, well, your end goal will be what you want. Right. You know, I was asked to do a talk for the Rotary a couple of years ago about a life experience that I had. And yep. they had some judges in there and lawyers and some mm-hmm. diplomatic figures. And I was supposed to talk about one thing, but for whatever reason, as I was going through the whole talk, yeah. it, it completely took a right angle. Really? And uh, it, it essentially revolved around, without even knowing it, the mental management process. Yep. And how working through a, a difficult situation, but segmenting it into small chunks and actually believing in certain areas yep. and finding that everything sort of unfolds as it should. Mm-hmm. It was without getting too specific into yep. the situation. But yeah. Interesting that you said small chunks because um, that is a massively important part of mental management is small manageable goals. Mm. So you get guys that look at things and you ask them to set a goal and their goal is I want to win a national championship. Okay. Right. Well, that's a, that's, that's a good goal, but what are the steps to get there? How are you going to do this? You can't just say, I want to win a national championship and then be disappointed when you don't. Right. So if you break things down into small portions and you achieve those portions and you keep achieving those small portions, guess what happens? You end up winning a national championship. So as far as shooting goes, that's just firing a perfect shot every time you're there. But it could be anything in any any kind of business or a talk or whatever you're giving, it's all the same thing. Small achievable goals. And then that way you're, you're winning, you know, you achieve those goals and you get that feeling and everything is good. And then you tack another one on top of that and another one on top of that. And, right. and then you end up in the, in the zone that you want to be in. So it's okay to set the North star as. Sure. I'd like to win this or I'd like to win X amount of times yeah. or. Sure. But, and that's okay to have that. And as long as you look back and all of your small chunks lead towards that final destination. Totally. I think, I think you have to go in with a winning mindset into whatever you're going into, be it a shooting competition, business, gunfight, whatever. Right. You totally have to go in with a winning mindset, but you can't be focused on that win. You have to be focused on the steps to get to that win. Right. I always say that, well, I've, I've probably said this previously on the on this podcast, but the path to being subconscious is paved with a thousand or ten thousand conscious steps. So, in order to get subconscious, you have to do a thousand conscious repetitions, basically. But it's kind of the same idea as far as achieving your end goal. Mm. You know, there's a lot of little steps to get there. You just have to achieve each one of those little steps as you go along to get to that end. It's interesting you mentioned uh, surviving a gunfight. Yeah, really, the the process. I've never been in a gunfight, so I, I don't know. But I think if you look at the overall process of a gunfight, it's more important for you to fire good shots and make good hits, depending on what kind of gunfight you're in, maybe make good wind calls hmm. to achieve that end result of being alive. Right. That's exactly the same as on a shooting range. When you're in a competition, you need to shoot good shots to win. So whether the win is staying alive or uh, ending up getting a trophy or on a chair or whatever, the steps are kind of the same. So since we talked last, of course, we have the big COVID-19. Yes. Yep. How has that affected IBI? 
Well, I mean, it affected us. We laid off pretty much everybody in the shop except for me for about three weeks. Right. And so for me, it, it didn't really change. I basically had to continue on with everything that I needed to continue on with. But the shop wasn't producing barrels. I was running off of what we had in stock, basically, right. but still getting barrels out. But it's been four really good months. Really? <laughs> yeah, it has since uh, COVID-19 hit. They've probably been our busiest four months so far in the, in the business. Why do you think that is? I think there's a few factors. I think probably people were a little bit worried about what was going on. Sure. As far as whether it was going to get really ugly. Right. Um, probably some of the shenanigans in the States people were looking at saying, I hope that doesn't bleed over up here, but if it does, I'm going to be ready for it. Right. So I think that was a factor. And I guess that makes sense. Well, because when I think of IBI, I don't necessarily think of, you know, if I look at the shenanigans in the States, yeah. I, I better get a new barrel on my gun, but you guys do more than that. I mean, there's for sure massive suppliers out there that you guys yep. make the barrels for yeah, and true. there's going to be a big demand on their yep. barreled actions. Yeah. I mean, the other thing too, is that if, if this virus thing got really, really bad and there was a while there where uh, supply chains were somewhat threatened, I mean, just look at the toilet paper shortage. Um, <laughs> thankfully that didn't really matter, but I mean, if it came down to a meat shortage or mm. something along those lines, any kind of food shortage, there were people that uh, wanted to be ready to go hunting and to, you know, shoot a moose or a deer or an elk or whatever the case may be to be able to feed their family. Right. So there was definitely some of that going as well. I find that whole survival prepper mindset is just, is definitely grown because yeah. people are being shown that there are holes yeah. in their, yep. in their plan. Yeah. I think, I think this whole thing has shown a lot of holes in a lot of respect. People don't know how to get food mm. on their own. And I think maybe not so much up here, but in the States, I think if you look at people wanting to be able to protect themselves, that's a, that's a massive thing as well. People that normally weren't purchasing firearms, I think have seen some of the stuff that uh, goes on on TV and are like, I do not want to have to deal with that right. in my neighborhood. So it's probably best if I'm ready to at least ward a few things off. My mother-in-law, she's the last person who should own a firearm and she's totally- Are you sure you're allowed to say that? She's going to hear this. <laughs> she says- um, Sorry, mom. <laughs> she, uh, when COVID hits, yep. Trav, how do, how do I get a firearm? And and she's totally not a firearms person, not yep. into firearms, but that- yep. And when we talk about that American sentiment, I think it's because a lot of Canadians are afraid to say the uh, the self-defense side, yep. Yep. Uh, which is a perfectly legitimate it's reason. It's totally legit no matter where you are. Right. Yeah. It's, we just kind of have it ingrained in ourselves that, no, yeah. no, no, that's America. We can't defend ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's funny, you know, I when all this stuff started sort of getting to that crazy point, I actually had two people send me messages and ask me if they could borrow a gun. I did too. I'm like, no, you can't <laughs> right. borrow a gun. You need a license for that. Right. Yeah, but can't you just get, yeah, okay, so I'm going to give you, I'm going to let you borrow a gun. You don't have a license. Uh, you don't know how to operate it. Yeah. You're going to shoot somebody by mistake or yourself, and they're going to ask you how you got a gun, and then you'd be like, well, Ryan lent it to me. Oh, totally. And then I'd be like, man, and, and they're like, oh. Yeah, okay, I guess that kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, we, we do have some rules in place, you know. Yeah. It's that whole legal gun owner thing, you know? Yeah, totally. It's like, uh, 
kind of want to stay legal. Yeah, if I want to call myself a, a lawful, law-abiding firearms yeah. owner, you yeah. kind of have to obey the law. Totally. Yep, and I'm not being handing out any guns anytime <laughs> soon to anybody. Been a while, actually. So COVID, I had a couple of people say, hey, do you have any guns I can borrow? Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm going back about 20 years. But the last time I was ever asked if someone, someone asked me if they could borrow a firearm, a guy phones yeah. up and he says, hey, I, I want to get a uh, firearms license. Yeah. I said, okay, well, there's a mandatory course. Sure. You, know, you go through the course and then... Provided you're successful. And I take yep. him through the whole process, right? Yep. And our listeners, I'm sure, know about. And he says, oh, perfect. When's your next course? I said, you're in luck. It's coming up this weekend. Yep. Great, because I need a gun for the weekend following. <laughs> I said, well, it doesn't mm, work that way. Yeah. I explained it to him. And a really nice Filipino fellow. And yeah. He says, uh, okay, well, let, let me think on this. And he calls back later. And he's like, I got to figure it out. I'll take the course. I'll get a bunch of my friends to take the course with me. And mm-hmm. that way you're going to see I'm a good person. I associate with good people. And then you'll feel comfortable lending me a firearm afterwards. <laughs> right? I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. No. no. And so now I'm really curious. Like, what do you need yeah. a firearm for for yeah. next weekend? He says, well, oh, what's my, your deal? Totally. He says, uh, well, my brother's coming in town. Uh-huh. This is not good. Right. And <laughs> my mind's going a billion different places. Yeah. And he says, well, we've been purchasing livestock at an auction and we want to have a big barbecue because my brother's uh, coming in and we got a cow. Yeah. And re- pre- prior to this, it's always been goats and mm-hmm. smaller Pigs. animals. Yeah, right. Yeah. And he says, well, can you come and shoot it for me? <laughs> no way. <laughs> like said, in his backyard or what? Yes. <laughs> oh no. And Please said, tell me that you didn't go shoot it for him. And so. <laughs> <laughs> he had a farm in the middle of BC somewhere. Right. Yes. Out in the area, lawful to yep. obviously discharge sure. firearm for your, uh, for your livestock and yep. all the rest. And, yep. But I show up there. And I'm the only white fellow there, yep. t- towering above a whole bunch of yeah, Filipinos. You're, and, you're not a small guy. <laughs> and with a rifle in my hand. Yeah. And they're already cooking up a goat on the ground. I thought they were oh, wow. burn, burning the hair off of it, but yep. it, it was all crepitous and black and charred. And they're cooking it up with a, a, a mm. propane roofing torch, right? Oh, <laughs> and I'm like, oh. uh, yep. they said, oh, it's great. It's really good. And yep. I'm like, oh, I'll, they offered me some and I- sure lightly declined and they had two cows there yeah. and yeah. these cows instead of I guess some cows are going to have their horns and they usually chop them and they oh, okay. put some lye on it yeah, yeah. that yeah. was I always figures the males that had it but the females can have to as well and hmm. uh, they had horns yeah. and they were afraid of them and I figured I'd just go up and put the thing against his head and Boink. and put it down and nope yep. and this thing's running around all oh, after no way. <laughs> anyways so um, <laughs> it, I'm like I, I know the general area to shoot this cow in the skull because we had a commercial fly fishing lodge and yep. there was a cow skull that I'd found as a child and yep. had hung up and had a little 22 hole in there. Yeah. Yep. And so, but I'm looking at the skull and I'm, or I'm remembering the skull and I'm looking at the cow mm-hmm. and it doesn't really line up yeah. when you got everything on there. Sure. And anyways, I pull the trigger and oh, <laughs> no. goes running off and I'm feeling bad. Oh and, no. Catch up with it. Get it. All right. You sort them out pretty quick? No. <laughs> no. But I had a very nice grouping. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. I had a very nice grouping, but 
I learned I was in totally the wrong spot. I felt so oh, bad. No but they had two cows there. Second yep. spot, second cow, and I learned the proper spot. Yep. Down, Boink. I mean, before it hits the ground, it's dead. Yeah, nice. But, uh, and finally- they Was get, it a 22? It was a 22. Yeah, yeah. And finally, they get themselves licensed and um, mm-hmm. I end up uh, giving them a 22. And oh, nice. Just, yeah, just a awesome. little thing so they could uh, they could do their own cows. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I- some uh, year and a bit goes by and I get a call, hey, can you help us kill a cow? And yeah. in the meantime, I'd killed yeah. a bunch of cows for them and yeah. it was yeah. very clean, very humane. Yeah. I knew what I'm doing now yeah. and I just, yeah. I'm like, you got your own rifle. What do you, what do you need me for? Yeah. Right? It's like, oh, I just, uh, made, we tried a shot. It didn't go down. All right, I'll come on out. Yeah. So I bring my 22 and they had purchased a property across the street. They were getting a much larger operation mm-hmm. and they had a Hereford bull there. Oh no. Towered above the other cows. Jeez. <laughs> No wonder they wanted you over there. Right. So we're walking up and, you know, first guy says, well, I tried one shot and uh, didn't go down. So I uh, decided time to call you Trav. Yeah. Next guy's talking. He's like, oh yeah, it was like uh, six or seven shots. And guy, <laughs> guy in the back's like, oh, I lost count after how many shots. And I'm like, oh my God, poor guy. Right. Jeez. And anyways. Uh, they just bouncing him off his head or what it, was it? The skull's just too thick. Too thick, yeah. And if you guys, if anyone listening ever finds themselves in that situation, <laughs> uh, the cows will have a bony ridge and the, and the yep. bulls as well down the center yep. of their skull. So yep. you want to go offset of that a little bit and you take the eyes and the horns and you mm-hmm. draw an X and you just, middle of that X, offset the center. Yeah. And uh, that's your, that's your sweet spot. Huh, interesting. So first time I was doing it, I was a little low. And yeah. Uh, so came back with something that was uh, more appropriate for the Hereford Bowl. And, yeah. Uh, and we're done. But Perfect. Yeah, I don't know how we got into that story. That's funny. I don't know either. Oh, boring guns. There you go. <laughs> so I have a funny Filipino uh, story about uh, when I was doing some security on a, on a boat. Yeah. Uh, we had a Filipino crew and they were great guys. And we were in the middle of the Indian Ocean and they decided that they were going to go into a deep water port okay. off of uh, Mumbai. So we're sitting in this deep water port for like seven days. So the reason we were on the boat was because uh, we were transiting near the coast of Somalia. So it was an anti-piracy thing. So we're completely across the Indian Ocean in near India. I think we were about 40 miles offshore. Maybe a bit more. I can't remember. But anyways, we're in a deep water port and there's like 100 boats there. And the Indian Navy is cruising around. So it's basically almost stand down right. kind of time, right? So one of the, uh, one of the fellas, uh, has a birthday. So they're like, yeah, you should, you should come down to the lounge. And there's four of us, right? And there's me and another Canadian. There's an American ex-ranger and there's a Scottish SAS guy, ex-SAS guy. Awesome guy. So you guys should come down and, uh, join in the party. So we're like, okay, no problem. You know, we made sure everything was good and then uh, packed up our crap, put it away, and then went down into the lounge uh, for some really lousy whiskey yeah. and food. So we walk in and there's a pig's head on the uh, on the counter and, you know, they're cutting pieces off. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. All right, whatever. I, I'm probably not going to go there because it's just not my bag. Yeah. But I'll eat the other other stuff they had. And they had snacks and all kinds of stuff laid out and whatnot, right? So we get a few crappy whiskeys in and not really paying attention. And we're doing karaoke and having all kinds of fun. And uh, they push over a uh, a plate of what I thought was some sort of antipasto. 
okay. know, like uh, with olives and all that kind of yeah, I know what you mean tomatoes and and some crackers and stuff like that, and and they sort of shove it over to the table, and uh, Grant, the other uh, the SAS guy, he, he Scottish guy, he passes it over to me. He's you know have some, okay. So I <laughs> stick a chip in there and scoop up a big pile of this stuff and shove it in the face and I start chewing and I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird, weird flavor. And, and I'm like, no, texture of this is really strange. And so I keep chewing and I realize that I'm chewing something that I probably shouldn't be chewing. <laughs> <laughs> so I look down into the bowl I take an unwhiskey look down into the bowl. Yeah, yeah. And I realize that uh, there's fur in the bowl. Mm. So, and I look over at the Filipino dudes and they're all staring at me like, I can't believe you ate that. <laughs> and they're all kind of laughing and smiling and whatnot. And I look down and so it's some sort of goat skin mixed in with olives and tomatoes <laughs> and it still has a hair on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and Grant's looking at me like, you're a crazy bastard. <laughs> and uh, I, I took one bite and then when I looked down, I'm like, oh my God, it's got hair on it. And so I just fired another shot of whiskey down and swallowed it. And yeah. I'm like, thanks fellas. And, and after that, they were like, oh, that was, we didn't think you would eat that. And yeah. I'm like, uh, if I had known there was hair on it, I probably wouldn't have eaten That's it. That's right. <laughs> Terrible. But yeah, they were all buddies after that. And it was pretty funny. Uh. Filipino cuisine, you know, in retrospect, I yeah. wish I kind of tried some of the stuff that yeah. they had there just because yeah. it's a bit of an adventure, but yeah. it, some of it's pretty strange for our palate. <laughs> we had one other thing when we were on the boat. I, we're totally digressing out of the we way are. this podcast went, but so we ran different shifts on this boat and Grant's was just ahead of mine. So after mine finished, I would go down and he would usually be at uh, breakfast or lunch or whatever the case was, right? Yeah. And so I go down into the mess and we ate in the officer's quarters with the captain and all the other officers on the boat. So I go down in and, uh, you know, we got rifles and stuff. And I don't remember at what point in the journey we were on, but we were still armed. So went down into there, into the uh, thing and we had our own table, security guy table and Grant's sitting there and he's kind of just staring at his plate, looking forlornly. And uh, (laughs) so I walk in and I'm like, Hey man, how's it going? He's like, Hey. Good. And I sit down and, uh, the cookie, who was the guy that brought all the, the food, he comes over and he drops his plate on my, in front of me. And I'm not really paying attention. Right. Right. And so I look down at it and there's a piece of spine. <laughs> <laughs> it's about five vertebrae long and it's, it's pretty much just a spine. Mm. And I look over at Grant and I said, is that a spine? And he goes, aye, it's a spine. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, okay, what are we supposed to eat this? And he's like, I don't know. I've been trying to figure it out for 20 minutes. (laughs) I go, where, is there even any meat on there? And he's like, I don't know. And I'm like, okay. Uh, Anyways, so I got cookie over and we're like, hey, uh, so do you have like any rice? Oh yeah. Okay. I'll bring some rice. (laughs) So I brought over rice. You don't want the spine? I'm like... I didn't know. I don't even know where I would go with that. <laughs> and so he took the spines away and brought us some rice. And Yeah. I need yeah. some white guy food. White guy food. Yeah. 
So are you supposed to like suck the gelatin out of the I, center? I guess or? that was kind of the gist of it, but yeah. I, we never really got that far because <laughs> both of us were kind of trying to figure out, because there was basically, it didn't seem like there was any meat on it okay. anywhere, but I, I don't even know what it was. They cleaned it good. It was a goat or uh, a sheep or something, huh. maybe. There you go. I don't know. Who huh. knows? Oh, my wife's a chef and I've been experimenting more and more, some yep. weird, crazy stuff I never would have thought I'd eat. But, yeah, get uh, her get her to get you spine. That's right. We'll cook up yeah, some spine. That's good. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so yep. we've had COVID, positive yes. effect on business. That's great. Yeah, it's been it's been busy. Yeah. Aside the initial let off, but Yeah. And then we of course had big old gun bad. Oh man. Yeah, that one. Uh, <laughs> so on a personal level, you're coming off Six-time win, National Service Rifle Champion. Yeah. I mean, you train for that yeah. um, both physically and mentally a lot. It's mm-hmm. a, a big part of what you do. Yeah. And now where does that stand? It's it's done. It's done. Yeah. Service Rifle, which has been running since the late 1800s as a way of training soldiers to be better shots, to protect their own lives overseas. And has only been interrupted twice in the history of Canada, once for World War One, and the second time for World War Two, is now stopped altogether, finished, uh, because of our current lack of leadership in the government. Right. And that's affecting a lot of people's sports, but I mean, for you, it was a completely different level. Like some people, oh, I'm going to go shoot service rifle, go have some fun yeah. with the guys. Yeah. You... Yeah, it. really, it's, yeah, it's, it kind of crushed me to be honest with you. Right. I mean, it's something I've, it, it it's a huge part of my life. Right. Um, it's something that I trained for. It's something that affects me in everyday life because I take the lessons I learned from service rifle and put it into running a business and life in general. So, I mean, all that stuff is, is just basically been washed away now for no reason. Zero reason. Well... Let's hope the uh, next election that comes up will change this. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're also fighting it in court, right? So I'm I'm a plaintiff in the CCFR court case. I didn't realize that you were yes, in there. Yes, I am. Okay. So are you able to talk about that at all? I think so. Little bits. I'm not okay. gonna I'm not gonna get into strategies no. or anything like that. However, I think the CCFR case and all the other cases are there's really uh, valid challenges constitutional challenges and other things as well. Oh, I agree. I hope that we get our day in court. You know, <laughs> either way, as long as this government gets gone right, or this thing gets struck down via a court case or uh, a change of government, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't care. Either way, make it happen. Right. Well, a court case thing can be a bit of a double-edged sword too, depending on who's hearing it and, can be. and where it goes. Yeah, and- for sure. The, uh, just just having it gone, changing yeah. government, basically every conservative candidate has yeah. said. Yeah, they have. It, it's gone. Yep. I'm sure it won't happen right away when they come in. They'll save it until right before election oh, time. Of course. Of course. Four years Which after. is super frustrating. Um, you know, really, you would think that when a government like that is coming to to change everything, that they would get that taken care of in a timely manner so that people really know that they're, they're doing what they're promising to do instead of letting it lag over, you know, for a year period or whatnot to get some sort of political points, political points across and, you know, just so that it seems like they're doing something at the end. 
Right. You know, scoring some political points. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it's frustrating. It'd um, be a change. It'd be a change to the narrative if they did it like that. It would be. And you know what? People would probably be a lot more good to go with it in because everybody knows what you guys are doing. So if you're going to hang on to this stuff and not deal with it until the election rolls around, that makes you almost as bad as the people that put it in place in the first case. But if you take care of it right away and uh, make good on the promise that you made and even go a little further and make it so that this kind of crap can't happen to the civilian shooters again, you would own the votes for everybody else's lifetime. Well said. Yeah. Well said. I like to think. Yes. Somebody would stand up and do it that way instead of doing it the cheesy way. I think people are waiting for that. I think there's a general hunger for people to just do it the right way. Yeah. I think there's a bit of a lack of leadership in a lot of ways. And really somebody kind of needs to stand up and and do it the proper way. Mm -hmm. And let people know that, hey, we're not messing around. We said we're going to do this. And guess what? Here it is. It's all laid out. We're going to protect you guys for the future. And uh, so... You know, you would, you would gain votes and you would probably hold those votes for a long time Mm -hmm. if you did it that way. But hey. Who are we? I'm not a politician. Right. Yeah. Probably a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. I'd vote for you. Oh God. No. So now are you putting your efforts more to like PRS style shooting? Yeah. So a service rifle, uh, well, okay. Service rifle is not 100% dead. Okay. However, uh, in the form that it previously was, it is 100% dead. Mm. Um, But there are still people that are attempting to keep that style of shooting going. Uh, Keith and Linda at Milken Training Complex are running what they call rebel rifles, which are 223 bolt actions, fairly light, uh, quite manageable. Good for them. Yep. And so they're trying to shoot similar matches, obviously the timings and, and a lot of things would have to be changed to make it viable for uh, a bolt gun. Um, but they're, they're trying to keep it going. And yeah, I mean, I haven't heard anything from the BCRA. Mm-hmm. Not a thing, not a word, uh, which is somewhat frustrating as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, basically nobody other than Keith and Linda are attempting to uh, keep things running, uh, service rifle wise, unfortunately. Well, good for them. And if yeah. our listeners hear this, maybe they can send some support over to Keith and Linda yep. and Milcon. Milcon Training Complex. And if you want high-end training that's in Canada, in Ontario, that's where you want to go. And they can train you on not only the fundamentals of marksmanship, but mm-hmm. if you really want to take it to the next level in your shooting with mental management strategies, that's the only place that you can learn it, probably in North America. That, and I've been seeing some of the baking that Linda's been doing. <laughs> I, I would like to go yeah. eat some of the stuff that she posts on the Bulu page. The oh Blue my Bread God. Page. It's insane. And you as well. You've become quite the baker. <laughs> you got the sourdough down, Pat. Well, it kind of looks good. I don't know whether it tastes <laughs> all that. My kid seems to like it, but... He'd probably eat sawdust if I fed it to him. <laughs> and this is the byproduct of COVID. Yeah. You never baked before? No. And I totally thought, you know what? It's probably a good idea if I have like some flour and some rice and, you know, the usual stuff at the house. Right. If things are going to get out of hand here, I want to be able to like, you know, feed myself and my kid. Totally. And then I'm like, well, I got flour, 
but I haven't got a clue what to do with the flour. <laughs> so maybe I should, maybe I should figure out how to bake some bread. Right. So I started monkeying around with bread and I had a couple of buddies, army buddies, which is strange. We were all sort of on the same kind of page. And of course, this whole boogaloo thing in the States, you know, whatever. Right. So I just made this Facebook page and called it Boogaloo Bread. And it's stupid. The amount of people that post their recipes and stuff, it's got nothing to do with Boogaloo. It's just right. got, it's just bread and, and different types of food. And like some of the stuff that people post, Linda posts some pretty amazing. Yeah, she does. She did some uh, uh, relish the other day. I can't remember. I think it was squash or something like that, but it looked killer. I so, yeah. tried my hand at it, did one thing. Did you? Yeah, well, I did, um, yeah. it was a Biga starter that, uh, oh, nice. I, I know nothing about bread, yeah. but uh, my wife worked in a couple bakeries for oh, a few no. years. And so cool. I, I leaned on her heavily. What do I do next? Now mm -hmm. what? <laughs> right. Okay. Now what? Yep. yep. Then I got the final product out there and I ADHD kicked in and it was onto something else. Ah, no but, way. Uh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's good. Fun. Yeah, lots of fun. Yeah. There's lots of recipes on there that you look at it and you're like, wow, I could actually make that. And it's pretty easy to do. Yeah. A bunch of good people too. And it's yeah. pri primarily in the shooting community. It is. Yeah, yeah. Really a lot of people in there, are the, the Canadian service rifle slash, well, other shooting, sh shooting yeah. communities too, but it really, it kind of started with service rifle folks. So now with uh, PRS. So I shot yeah. my first PRS yes, style did. match here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was good. Tried that out. That was fun. Yeah. You enjoyed it? Oh man. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. I saw the points where I was weak on, the points mm -hmm. where I, I did well. Yeah. Uh, target identification at distance yep. was uh, something I was kind of uh, struggling with at first. Yeah. And yeah. At uh, in a couple of the wind calls, but mm -hmm. I think on station eight there. But, yep. you know, out of 53 people, I came, what, 15th? Yep. So I'm okay with that. But that's that's I, pretty awesome for your first go. I prefer to say I came in uh, second place for my division. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it was, uh, I was, <laughs> yeah, you're shooting a 308, weren't you? That's right. Yeah, that's good. So yeah. Second place for the tactical really division. Good. Yep. Yeah, that's perfect. But they didn't have a second place trophy. <laughs> <laughs> nope. First place loser. That's right. You got yep. it. Yep. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And it is a lot of fun. So we've got another one coming up here in... In Pemberton, is it? There is a Pemberton one in uh, September, BC Precision Rifle League. Uh, Dave Gariani and uh, Josh both uh, put them on up there. So yeah, should be should be a good go. I'm not 100% sure if I'm going to make it or not. Well, you came first place on the last competition there. I did. That was my, my first win, actually, in a PRS uh, ah. style competition, which was good. The weekend before that, I was in Alberta shooting in Medicine Hat, and that was a big match. There was like 80 people. Okay. And we shot on a farm out to 1,200 yards, I think. It was pretty far. Nice. It was awesome. Uh, really windy. Uh, a lot of challenges there. I think that one was probably my, I think that was my fifth PRS match, actual PRS match. Okay. So the reality of it was, is I'm still trying to figure out how to do this properly. I'm a reasonable service rifle shooter, but when you, when you have to add in all the different, uh, aspects of the PRS kind of stuff, it, it, it changes things around and you kind of, for me, I had to process how to do it all. So right. the merit match there was, well, the, the Alberta one in Medicine Hat was really the first one where I sort of had my act together. Okay. Managing the Kestrel and all that kind of stuff really was sort of the complicated bit for me and trying to deal with all the wind calls and all the dope and, right. and what I needed to be focused on and how much energy I needed to put into certain things 
as opposed to shooting good shots. So I'm going to ask you about the Kestrel in a second, but okay. I'm curious. The mm -hmm. match that we did there, is yeah. that kind of indicative of what the other, you said it was five other matches you've done? Are yeah. they all kind of similar? Yeah, pretty similar. You know, you're shooting off of uh, different types of obstacles at, at various distances. All the other matches I've done have all been in places where you could shoot probably out to 14 or 1500 meters. Mm. The Merit one, I think, what was it? 600 meters? Yeah, six. At the most? Yeah. Yeah, smaller targets. Small targets, but yeah. easier to make hits at six. Yeah, and yeah, for sure. More, probably a little bit less on the wind calls and whatnot as well. Mm. And we're shooting from vehicles inside yeah. and yeah. on top. And yeah, I mean, if you have a shorter range where you're only able to shoot out 600 meters, you make the targets a little smaller mm -hmm. and you make the positions a little more complicated or you make the, the stages that they run a little more complicated. So, I mean, there were a couple there when we were going through, what was it, a minivan? That's right. And you had yeah. like four or five positions in the minivan, on the minivan, around the minivan. That's right. Uh, shooting off of, you know, like bouncy seats and all kinds of stuff like that. So that station. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. You let me use the, uh, that bag you had, that shooting oh, bag. The Warhorse. Yeah. The Warhorse. Yeah. Yeah. The plaid Warhorse. That thing made a world of a difference. Yeah. 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 A good bag really does uh, make it easy for you. I've got several bags, and I think that. The Warhorse one is probably the one that I'll run with the most. Yeah. Uh, just because it sits on obstacles really easy, doesn't fall off. Mm. It's not super heavy, so it's not difficult to carry around. And yeah, it seems to kind of conform to a lot of the uh, complicated positions that you need to shoot. Well, I, of. I reached out to uh, Chaz and Don oh, did you? down at oh, Warhorse right Development. Yeah, wicked, and, wicked. Yeah, yeah, so talk to them a bit about their products. And awesome. The, because they, they got some great products yeah. and they're getting some more pictures and photos up on their site. Yeah, totally. I don't know how long they've been around for, but... Uh, Wars has been around, I don't know, four or five years, probably yeah. at least. It, it's uh, That's when I basically sort of took notice. Got it. Yeah. So I've got a... Uh, I got my you got own, one coming? Got my own coming. Nice. It's on its way. It's, it's on. not blue plaid by any chance, is it? It is not. Okay. <laughs> I, think, I think I'm only by myself on that one. The plaid. The plaid. Did you request that one? I did. Well, Chaz was like, so what color do you want? And I'm like, I don't know. What do you got? He's like, well, you know, I got like gray and multicam and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, eh. you have anything that nobody would steal? He's <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I got this blue plaid. And I'm like, sold. Done. Done. I don't even want to see it. Just make it and I'll, <laughs> I'll take it. So That's it turned out really cool. Yeah. It's yeah, fantastic. It's neat bag. Yeah. So you're talking about the Kestrel. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a couple Kestrels. Yep. I got one with the Horus uh, ballistics on it and yep. one with the applied ballistics on it. Yep. And I just got the applied ballistics. It's got the Bluetooth because yep. um, I'm looking to put a video together for, for something else. Okay. And how it matches up with the Sig Kilo yep. and yep. Awesome. Um, range finders. So. Have you got a set of those? My wife does. Oh, she, nice. She I fell in love with those things down at Chacha. I uh, got to get one of Chacha. those. Yeah. I got, I got a, a Leica and mm -hmm. it's, I love it. The glass is great, yep. but, but I'm, they're a little larger yep. for, for the bino pouch. Yep. And I'm thinking that the, the electronics, I'm not thinking, the electronics on the SIG are better than on the, really? uh, on the Leica. Yeah. Mm. Does the Leica Bluetooth to your Kestrel? No. No. Okay. So that, I mean, that's a huge advantage. You know right what, there. if it does, I don't know. And I've never done it. <laughs> I might have to read the instruction manual again. Check that out. Yeah. That's if right. you can do it, that'd be good. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think it does. I know the, yeah. the SIG Kilo does. The SIG does. does. Yeah. You know, like I have a SIG uh, laser rangefinder. I have a 2200 or 2400. I can't remember. It's, it's a good laser. It's right. a handheld 
small one, but it doesn't Bluetooth to the to the Kestrel. Mm. And so I was down shooting the sniper's hide there, and some of the guys I was shooting with were running the Kilo 3000 binos, mm. and it Bluetooths right to your Kestrel. So they would get on the target, laze it, and they're Bluetooth to the Kestrel, and it would just give you the dope right in the reticle wow. for the distance. So it was like... Okay, find the target, beep, laze it, and okay, your dope is 3.2. The guy would dial it on and fire and bing, just like that fast, right? Wow. Whereas I had the Kestrel in one hand and the laser in the other, yeah, and yeah. so I'd uh, beep the, the uh, laze the target, and then I'd be like, okay, uh, 700 and whatever. So then I got to dial it into the Kestrel, and of course, you miss on the on the distance on the Kestrel, so you got to go back and forth and back right. until you get to, you know, 700 and whatever. And, and those, uh, the laser rangefinders account yep. for elevation too. Yep. And the... Oh, yeah, it does everything. It just tells you what to dial onto your scope, and yeah. it's all taken off the Kestrel. So it's definitely something I have to look at as well. So I'm pretty sure I haven't been using my Kestrel properly mm-hmm. because I got it all, I set it up, was yep. really meticulous about going through, reading the manual, and... Yep. But I'm, I'm more or less just, you know, kind of half-ass, hold it up to the wind and Waving I don't know what around. I'm doing there. And then I <laughs> I could basically do what it needs to do with, with my phone because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just basically using the, the ballistic charts on yep. it. Yeah. But when I, you were up there, I noticed you're, it looked like you're taking back wind, side wind. A little bit, like yeah. It. Yeah. You know, in that Alberta match there, I, that's kind of when I sort of connected a bunch of dots. I was watching some of the better shooters okay. and how they did it. Uh, the guys from Team MDT. Okay. Uh, Dave Gariani and Raul uh, Ver- Verzoza were on my squad. And so they were helping me quite a bit figure out how to deal with the Kestrel. So put them sort of together for the merit match and sort of did it the way that they had sort of showed me and it worked out really good. So what kind of tips would you have for somebody like myself who's still learning the process? Well, I would trust the Kestrel. Right. Um, that's one thing that I see, and I probably was guilty of it myself, is you would look at the dope or the wind call or whatever on there and be like, no, it can't be that much. Right. 1.2 mils at 800 meters? There's no way I can hold off that much. <laughs> and then you get up there and you fire one and, oh, it, yeah, that's a miss. So you'll swing over to 1.2 and bing, oh, guess what? You hit. So trust the Kestrel is good, mm. uh, but try and make sure that the data that you enter into the Kestrel uh, to get everything set up because there's a portion that you have to set up on your phone, right? To get. Right. So you want the ballistic coefficient and all the other stuff that's on there, the drag model mm-hmm. uh, to be as good as possible to get the best possible data out of it. Right. So you're using what, like a G7 drag model for no, the. No, I use the, well, I was using the G7, but Raul actually said, you should use the custom curve on there. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I kind of monkeyed around with it a bit and sure enough, yeah, it seems to, seems to be a better option than either the G1 or the G7. And that was, that was something that I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know how to employ it previously. So those guys told me, yeah. And I'm sure they probably learned it from somebody else as well, or maybe they figured it out on their own as possible. Is it difficult to set up the custom curve? No, you don't do anything. You just put it on, you've got, uh, when you go into the drag model, it says G1, G7. Uh, AB custom. Right. Just click on AB custom and it, it automatically does it for you. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So that's an applied ballistics one. Yep. Okay. So yep. I, I don't know if they have that on the, the Horus version, so I'll have to check. You my... might not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would look on the, uh, is uh, it the 5700 Elite that you have? Right. Yeah. Okay. okay. It's in there for sure. Okay. Yep. Okay. So that's uh, something Brian Liltz came up with, eh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's a, 
Yeah, he, I think he's behind a lot of the the custom stuff that's on the 5700. Okay. Well, yeah. that's that's a pretty damn good tip. If I don't have to do any math to figure it out, I just click it and go. It just seemed that uh, if you did the G1 or the G7 drag model that you were always kind of adjusting, uh, you had to true the Kestrel a little bit more. Mm. So basically on the 6 mil that I shoot, I would have to take it out to about 900 and then adjust either the feet per second that it was running or okay. you had to adjust where it was hitting to true it up to the distance that you were dealing with. And it seems like the the custom curve is pretty much bang on. So right if, the get -go. so if somebody wants to get into PRS style shooting, mm -hmm. what do they need? Like let's say bare minimum, just so they're going to be yeah. able to be competitive and have fun. Okay. Well, the first thing you got to do is just a, got to have is just a willingness to come out and just give it a kick, even though you might not be a hundred percent prepared because the easiest way to get prepared is to go out there and have all your stuff kind of, have you realized that all the stuff that you have is either really good or not really good right? and what you need to sort of correct to get there. But you just need a rifle of some type. You could shoot anything from a 223 uh, up to a 308. I probably wouldn't go too much heavier than a 308 just because part of the process with PRS shooting is that you need to be able to see where your rounds are going in order to make a correction. Right. So you have nobody spotting for you. The person spotting for you is you. Right. So if you're trying to manage the recoil of a big heavy duty caliber and still see where your shot impacted, it's going to be difficult. And that's a bit of a setback. I don't, you're a big dude. So the 308, I'm sure probably you could manage the recoil on it without too much problem. And, it's and, not, uh, anything came with a muzzle brake and yeah, everything. I mean, I mean, it was just. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, it's still not super easy to see your impacts. Right. You know, if you're on a 300 meter target or something, it doesn't take long for that round to get there. And if you're still in recoil. Right. When that thing hits, you might miss the whole thing, especially if you're shooting into a target that doesn't really have a good backstop, like there's grass or bush behind it. You, right. All you might get is just a little flinch of the bush or the grass parting or, or, you know, a little poof of dirt or whatnot uh, for you to make that adjustment off of. So you need some sort of a, a rifle that you can manage the recoil on. So a good muzzle brake is a good idea. It's not 100% necessary. You'll need a stock or chassis of some type. A lot of MDT A lot of MDT, there. yeah. I think the, the benefit to the MDT ACC is that you can put a pile of weights in it. And if mm. you have a 25-pound gun you can definitely manage the recoil uh, on that a lot better because a gun helps you with that much weight on it. So right. that's, that's a huge one. The ACC, I, I like the ACC and I think my rifle probably weighs around 25 pounds altogether when it's all said and wow. all put together. Yeah, it's super heavy, but no kidding. You, you're never really moving more than what, like five meters, 10 meters at the most. I thought I had a heavy rifle until then. No, <laughs> I got mine in the truck. You should pick it up. It's, it's stupid how heavy it is. Yeah, it was fair enough. That's, yeah. 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 But it's good. But yeah, so any of the chassis that you can add weights into, uh, will help you out is this, but not hundred percent necessary. Uh, see people shooting with all kinds of different stocks and chassis and stuff doesn't necessarily have to be weighted. You know, if you're a good shooter and you're used to shooting with a certain type of stock, fill your boots. Like, you know, as long as you're making good hits and, and you're able to see your impacts, you're carry on. And having a bipod or a bag or yep. something that you can rest it on is helpful. Yeah. So probably both. Yeah. Uh, you need some sort of a, a bag because there's a lot of obstacles that you're going to 
have to support the gun with uh, that you're not going to be able to use a bipod. Actually, probably the last two matches for me, I barely used the bipod. Mm. In Alberta, I think I used it twice or three times out of like 20 stages. Really? 22 stages. Yeah. Maybe two or three times. The rest was all off the bag. Right. Uh, off an obstacle. Because the- they, they try and mess with you, right? Uh, no, okay, here's the chain link fence. This is one in Alberta. You mm. got you to gotta poke your, your rifle has to be through the chain link fence it's high enough off the ground that you can't run on a bipod. So now you're into a tripod right. or you got to find another way to sort of poke it through there. And so, you know, uh, challenging stuff like that. It was a lot of fun. That sounds fun. Trying to figure it out. But yeah, so you need a bipod of some type. The more adjustability you have on a bipod, the better it's going to be for you. Uh, MDT has the SkyPod. And as far as I'm concerned, that's, pro- uh, I got the, Got to use it the first time in Alberta there. Right. And up until then, I was like, oh, I'll just run a Harris bipod. It should be fine. But there were times when we were shooting off of sloped roofs and stuff, mm. and it was very challenging with a Harris bipod. But the SkyPod just has so much adjustability to it that you can basically manage it on any obstacle. Okay. It, it adjusts in so many different ways. I, so that's pretty cool. I saw a number of people using the SkyPod over there. Did you? There. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I had a SkyPod on did. in Merritt. Yeah. yeah, the the boys lent me another one. Okay. So I got to buy one here pretty quick. <laughs> it's, it's pretty good bipod. Yeah, so you need that. You need a bipod. Uh, you need a decent chassis, a rifle of whatever caliber, as long as it's manageable, probably with a muzzle brake if you can, and then you'll need some optics. Mm. You'll probably need a 20 or 30 MOA rail. Mm-hmm. on top of your rifle to give you that extra distance because in some of the longer, the the higher-end PRS matches, you're going to be shooting out to 12, 1,400 meters. Mm-hmm. So you need the ability to, well, it's it's good if you can dial that far, but you may have to end up holding over. And, right. and that's another point. The optic that you run, you probably need something with one of those Christmas tree style reticles. Right. You can do it without it. But you're not doing yourself any favors. Well, I, I found, so I've got one of those Christmas yeah. trees selling, what is it, the H32 or something like H59, that? H59, the horse? Yeah. yeah. Is, is it the 59? Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. That's the same one I'm running. Oh, is it? Yep. Man, that thing was fantastic. It's it easy, eh? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Uh, I held off on- There's a lot of haters. Christmas tree reticles for a long time. Yeah. Because um, I'm like, I don't want all that busy crap in my- Totally. I'm used to- you know, like mill dots and all the other yeah. stuff. But as soon as I played with it and employed it, it was like, okay, I got to switch because it's just way too easy to get it sorted out. That's what I found. I've had a lot of people get behind the rifle and they look at it like, ah, oh, there's too much going on yeah, in there. Ah, the oh, it's no good, yeah. right? Yeah. But I mean, some of the stages there was like, okay, you can't, you can't touch your dial. That's but right. You, but you've got to hold yep. over for, yep. I mean, it's just dead easy. I'll yep. just put it on this one here. Click, yeah. click, click. Yep. And, yeah, that one stage, I think, where we had targets from 300 to 600 and you couldn't touch the dials. Right. I just did it all with holdovers and I think I hit 11 out of 12 shots. Yeah. Uh, on that. So. I think it was my best stage as well. Was it? it was, yeah. yeah. You know, what's funny is I've been practicing a lot with the holdovers because um, yeah, when I went and shot in Hanna, Alberta last year and in Meaford last year, the two PRS matches I shot there, there were a few stages with holdovers and I really hadn't played with it a lot mm. and I, I had problems. Mm. It wasn't just another one of the things tacked on to all the complicated stuff that screwed me up in those <laughs> matches. 
So when I came back, I'm like, okay, well, clearly holdovers is going to be a thing. So I'm going to have to play with it. So I started shooting a lot of 22 and, and running holdovers. Right. And I'm way more comfortable with it now. You got to remember that I come from a service rifle background where there's no holdovers. There's no nothing. You just dial everything and away you go. Right. So for me to get to that point was, you know, you, you try and do what you know. So for me, I was trying to dial everything and make it as good as I could, which is what I'm used to. And then, you know, obviously the flaws in my game plan came out and, okay, well, here we go. I got to, I got to make it happen the way it needs to happen. Right. Yeah. You know, there's matches where you don't have enough time to dial. You're going to time out. So you better be able to do it with holdovers. So having, having each mill or MOA or hopefully you're running mill rads. Are you running those? I am. Yeah. Okay. So me too. Yeah. But having each number with at least a half hash in between sort of gives you a really easy uh, reference to hold on when, you know, you're engaging a target at 300 and it's like two mils and then you got another target at like 600 and you got to hold at seven and a half. And so right. you just go from two to seven and a half and back to two and just there's no dialing, there's no nothing. But then you have the challenge of different wind calls in there as well. Right. So you may have to be holding left or right or whatever the case may be. So. Yeah, that's something I still, I'm going to have a lot of learning on that one. Yeah. I, I basically just held dead center. Did and you? if I didn't see it splash where I wanted, then I yeah. had made then my you, adjustment it, from there. Well, you know what? There's there's probably a valid argument. Like in the in some of the 22 matches, those little 40 grain bullets get blown off really far. And, and we're shooting them to crazy distances, like four or 500 meters, right? Right. So... Occasionally you will get up there and I've had this happen a couple of times where the wind is just, it's hauling ass and even a Kestrel is probably not going to give you, even though I say trust it, it's probably, the wind may be way different down there or at you or whatever the case may be. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll, instead of getting up there and attempting to find the target with the wind call, I'll just aim at the bottom of the target and if there's a nice backsplash there. I will shoot one into the dirt right off the get-go to see what the wind's doing. Mm. I know where I held, and then I can see where the splash lands, and it's basically grid-referenced in those reticle. Totally. So then you just haul it over and put where it splashed as the center of the target and hold there and carry on, and it works like a charm. Yeah. It's Field Leak Speed Insider. I love it. Yeah. I love it. So we've got PRS-style shooting, and then we've got, and by the way, anyone who's listening to it, what a fantastic group of people. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. You know, all this style of shooting, the people are super helpful. Yeah. Um, you're you're going to be in a squad of anywhere from, well, it could be as low as four or five to 12 people. You all help each other out, borrow bags, borrow bipods, borrow tripods, whatever the case may be. Hey, how did you do this? You know, even to the point sometimes where it's like, what were you holding for wind there? Right. You know, there's, there's times when there's some challenging conditions and, you know, is, you may not do it for everybody. Like right. if you got, you know, you're running one and two with buddy and he asks you what your wind call <laughs> is, I'm probably not going to tell him. But, you know, if it's somebody that hasn't really shot very much, well, you might want to try, you know, point, yeah. you know, point seven or seven tenths or whatever the case may be. Well, I saw some people brand new to the, uh, yep. to the sport up there, like yep. myself, that was my first match I've ever shot, but yep. I, I don't really consider myself new behind a rifle. And no, but for that type of shooting, it's, d- it's a different thing altogether. It is. Yeah. And super supportive, super great group of people. And anyone who's thinking about doing it, who might be a little unsure about yeah. trying something new and what's yep. the crowd like, put your fears at 
at rest. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You know, it's funny. Um, I try and get people to come out and shoot as much as possible and, and lots of people are interested. Mm. A lot of people seem to want to come and just watch. Right. I'll, I'll just come and watch one. Okay. You're going to drive three hours to watch a match. Are you out of your mind? Just bring your rifle and shoot it. Right. People don't like to fail though. They don't want to fail yeah. in front of other people. They yeah, don't. And that's, that's where having a good group of guys and gals makes yeah. it easy. Because yeah. nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody, nobody cares whether you fail. It's not even a fail. The fact that you're out there is not a fail at all. Mm-hmm. The fact that you're there trying and learning is yeah. not a failure whatsoever. Come, come with the right attitude. Yeah. Come with the right attitude and we'll give you as much help as you could possibly need. You know, even there's even, uh, I've, I've seen cases where uh, guys that I know are good shooters you know, in service rifle or three gun or whatever the case may be in another style of shooting. Yeah. I'll come and watch up here. Dude, just bring your rifle. Right. Shoot it. You can squat up with us and we'll walk you through it. You can use my bags. You can use my tripod. You can use my bipod. Any, I'll give you the dope. Right. Like, I don't care. I'll give you the wind calls. Just come and shoot because as soon as you shoot, you're addicted. Totally. Because it's so much fun. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's really incredible to think about what we're actually doing. We're sending a teeny little inch long projectile, not even an inch long in a lot of cases, over ridiculous distances at, you know, like you shoot a thousand meters, you'll shoot at a 10 inch target. That's one MOA. Mm. And you're sending this less than an inch long thing to hit this 10 inch target in a 16 mile an hour wind. And guys are hitting them on the first shot. Like- yeah. It's unbelievable, I think, what this sport in particular has done to long-range shooting. Mm. And I think you'll start to see it in, well, in future wars. Mm-hmm. You're going to see a lot more toll taken by long-range shooters than, I think, what we've probably seen previously. Mm. Snipers are a thing, but I think with the amount of technology and the things that are going on with long-range shooting right now, they're going to be, a, they're already a for, force multiplier, but they're going to be a massive force multiplier in the future. Mm. It's unbelievable that you can shoot and hit at like these crazy long distances and it's a first round hit every time. And it's a fantastic feeling. It's so fun on steel too, right? Like you just get that immediate feedback and quite often on the longer targets, they have a hit indicator on there. So you Mm. see, you shoot and you're like 20 mile an hour raging wind and you're making a first round hit on this target (laughs) at a thousand meters and the light flashes and you're like, yes, I shot the that target at the long range. I noticed at that match that of the top place shooters, they were all running. IBI barrels. They were. Yeah. I think it was eight out of the top 10 at that match were all shooting IBI barrels, which is great. Yeah. I mean, they perform real world. They perform. Yeah, totally. It goes back to the mental management thing where you want the barrels to perform as good or better as any of the other barrels on the market. Uh, but the way to get there is simply just to manage the processes that we put into the barrels so that that end result just happens. Right. And, and we're starting to get there now. Well, I think you've been there for a bit. And on the mental management side, knowing that you've got something that can shoot, mm-hmm. man, that helps. Confidence in your equipment is a massive thing in any kind of shooting sport or even sure. hunting for that matter, you know? Sure. You're out on a goat hunt and you got to make a 400 meter shot across an open valley. You yeah. want to know that your your rifle and all your kit is sorted out and, and good to go. So yeah, that's, 
we're hoping that the barrels shoot really, really well for everybody, and we're getting some pretty good results back. Well, Ryan, thank you very much for Thanks, taking Travis. the time to be on the podcast. Of course, anytime. And I appreciate it. Always enjoy it. Mm-hmm.